Well, happy Easter, Redeemer Fellowship Church. My name is uh, Pastor Matthew Castro, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. And we are going to look at the theme of joy. We uh, This is the second part of a two-part series that we started on Friday, on Good Friday, when Pastor Denton preached on lament, and from Lamentations, the book of Lamentations. And I will be talking about joy, and um, we will be looking at Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be going through a lot of different texts and scriptures. Um, and so if you're wanting to kind of follow along closely, and maybe you're watching on your phone, uh, you may want to go f- uh, find your printed Bible. Uh, I'm going to be reading at the ESV. You're more than welcome to eat at it, read at it, any translation. Uh, King James, NIV, doesn't matter. Um, they will all do. And so Ezra chapter chapter 3, if you don't know where Ezra is, Ezra is right before uh, Nehemiah, and then Nehemiah is right before the book of Job, which then enters into Psalms. So it's kind of there in the middle of your Bibles. Uh, Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, there Babel, the son of Shelath and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the, from the captivity. They appointed the Levite from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders led the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asp, with, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a, with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Although many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. The shout was heard far away. That is, this is God's word for us this morning. And uh, before we get into Ezra 8 through 13, um, like I said, the theme is joy. And kind of the, the big idea uh, for this sermon is to let us call to mind the enduring love of God for us that, it was, that was exhibited to Christ in his resurrection. And uh, so we want to talk about joy. We want to talk about celebration. And obviously, as I read, uh, the people of Israel are celebrating, right? They're celebrating uh, what God has done. And when I think about celebrations, especially for us as Americans, I think of the the victory over the German and the Japanese during World War II. Uh, Actually, on May the 8th, and then September the 2nd, is the 75th anniversary of the victories over the Germans and the Japanese in World War II. 
And on September the 2nd, 1945, when the Japanese officially surrendered to the United States to end the war, there was a great celebration. Uh, the celebration lasted two days long. This was a coast-to-coast celebration to celebrate the end of the war. Uh, especially if you think in the context of that generation, uh, in 1941, they were surprised, they were attacked by the Japanese. The Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, and then caused the, the Great War, the war that spanned the, literally the entire war where the United States were fighting a war in Europe and in Japan at the same time. And the many people that died, the, the war effort that, uh, that the, the entire country was put was pressed into. Uh, there was a lot of time of suffering and lament and sorrow and pain. And so when the war was over, it kind of just released this celebration and this, this happiness and joy. In New York City, there was two million people packed in Times Square to celebrate the end of the war. Uh, they were lifting cars, they were screaming and singing and, and playing music and instruments. Uh, it was known that sailors and soldiers were kissing pretty girls. Uh, th- th- you probably remember or seen the picture of the sailor kissing the nurse, right? And um, they were not dating. It was not even romantic. They even asked the nurse, Greta, who, who was her name, if she felt like offended, if, if she was kind of uh, taken back, uh, was disagreed with the, what the sailor did. And she even says that it wasn't romantic. It was, a, in a sense, it was a symbol of our happiness and our joy as a nation that we had, the war was over, um, that we had won the war. And so I think of also the moon landing as another event in, in, our, in a U.S. history in 1969 when Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon. And just the celebration around the world, but also in America, because we had beaten the Russians to the moon. Right? We won the space race. Um, so these are two particular examples of a nation celebrating and being in joy um, during a, a phase of lament and sorrow. And this is kind of the kind of very similar to what's going on in Israel, that they've had years and decades of lament and sorrow and now are experiencing celebration and joy. And kind of a, the main point of this sermon is God will not abandon his people. God will not abandon his people. And for Israel, and you know, Pastor didn't preach on Friday night through Lamentations, that what's happening in Lamentations with the people of Israel, right? Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, comes to Jerusalem, destroys the city, right? Many people die. Many people are taken into exile. They're taken from their homes. They're they're taken from the land of Judah, from Jerusalem, and taken to a foreign land, taken to to Babylon. And, And this is where they're having to now live. Many people starved. Many people uh, died at, with diseases. And it was a very traumatic and very horrible and hellish scene for the people of Judah, for the Jews. And as Jeremiah says in Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, um, So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope, my hope 
from the Lord. Hope was lost. You know, when, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, hope was completely gone. They were in complete sorrow and pain. Um, mothers having to, to sell their child, unable to feed their children, weeping, uh, heads in the dirt, and completely devastated and in despair by what happened, and hope had been lost. But the, pro, the, the, pro, the poet here in Lamentations, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he, he says, though, in verse 20 of chapter 3, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is the this that he is called to mind? What is bringing him hope? What is the seed of hope? in his mind that, is, that has changed him from despair to now having hope. He says in 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. There are, there, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Of course, that great and famous hymn, great is thy faithfulness, comes from this passage, comes from this verse. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, the prophet Jeremiah says, I remember your faithfulness and your steadfast love, and that gives me hope in the midst of this lament. He's reminded that God will not abandon his people. Um, to do a little bit of a backstory to Ezra chapter 3, uh, Israel has now been sent back to Judah, has been sent back to the promised land, to the land that they were that they had cultivated, that they had made their own. Um, and 539 BC, uh, the, uh, the king, king Cyrus the Great of Persia conquers the Babylonian Empire. And now the Persian Empire becomes the, the most dominant force, the most dominant uh, empire, nation, and civilization in the world. And this kind of marks 70 years from the rise of the Babylonians to the fall of the Babylonians. And uh, the prophet Jeremiah even says that in 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. God will visit Israel. God will fulfill to Israel his promises and bring them back. And God is being faithful to that promise. 70 years they were in captivity. 70 years they had spent in sorrow and lament as they were ripped from their home. And now God has risen up Cyrus, the great of Persia, and Cyrus has a new strategy, a new way to manage and rule his kingdom. And uh, this is reminding Israel, this is reminding the Jews that God is faithful to his promises and he does not abandon them. He will not abandon them to corruption. He will not abandon them to despair and lament, but he will restore them. He will restore their joy. Cyrus in, is actually the main speaker in Ezra chapter, chapter 1. And is the first year of, of Cyrus's reign. He has conquered the Babylonians. He is now the, the, the largest, the most powerful man in the world. And he makes a proclamation. And his proclamation is, is he's basically saying in verse 
2 of Ezra 1, that the Lord God, the Lord of the Jews, the Lord of Israel, Yahweh, has given him kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged him, Cyrus the Great, to build for God a temple, a house in Jerusalem. And to accomplish this work, he sends Jews that were living in Babylon, uh, that were now part of the Persian Empire, because Babylon had fallen, he sends them back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And he says, whoever is among you of all his people, let him go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. Rebuild the temple. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns return to Judah to return to Jerusalem. So the Lord stirred up some to go and build the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God stirred up in their spirit uh, a group of those who were Jewish to leave the, the, the home and the, and the life that they had made in Babylon to then go back to the destructive Jerusalem, the city that was completely destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years, or, or, or maybe basically 50 or so years before this. This is in a sense a new exodus. Uh, but instead of, of, of God simply removing them from a, a foreign nation where they're in captivity, God is actually allowing or, or, or forcing or, uh, or compelling these, Cyrus the Great, the king of the empire, to send them. And even Cyrus the Great, Great says that the neighbors of these people, these Jews that are leaving, they should give them resources and aid. Very similar to what happened in Egypt, right? When the Jews left slavery in Egypt, they pillaged the houses. But in this particular situation, they weren't being pillaged. They were, people were giving money and gold and aid to the people as they migrated back to Jerusalem. The vessels of the old temple that, that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon took from the Solomon's temple, Cyrus ordered that those vessels be taken out of the treasury and given back to the people of Israel to then return to the new, new, newly built temple of the Lord. So the people came out of captivity. Uh, Ezra chapter 2 says about 42,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. God resurrected. He, re, he rebirthed uh, an assembly of his people to go back to Jerusalem. And God continued to show his favor to Israel. He had not abandoned them to utter destruction. As the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3 verse 18, he had lost hope. He had, he had believed that God had completely abandoned Israel, his people, to utter destruction. But God was faithful. God had not abandoned them to utter destruction, but reestablished them. And he reestablishes worship. They gathered in, in Ezra chapter 3. It, we see that they gathered as one people. In Jerusalem, they had a common purpose, a common cause, a common goal. And they first build a new altar to the Lord. They start to offer burnt offerings, right? They start to repent and confess their sins through burnt offerings for worship of God, right? As, a, as a, uh, offerings to show worship to Yahweh and his goodness, and to worship and praise his name. The altar symbolized 
their dependence on God for security in life. We see in Exodus 29:43 that God tells uh, uh, Israel through Moses that, that I will be I will meet with you. I will meet with my people on the altar and they will be sanctified by my glory. So the altar even symbolizes God's presence in the midst of his people. God had not abandoned them to corruption. David, and King David says in one of his Psalms, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, that he was confident that God would not leave him to, to corruption. He wouldn't abandon him to corruption. And Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, uses that Psalm, Psalm 16, to reference that Jesus Christ will also not be abandoned to corruption by his Father God. God does not abandon his people to corruption. The prophet Haggai, who is writing during the time of the building of this temple, says, my spirit remains in your midst, that God's spirit will always remain in their midst. They then establish all the festivals of the Lord uh, as memorials of God's goodness and faithfulness to God to remember as they do those festivals that God will always be faithful and not abandon them. We see that at the end of, in verse 7 of chapter 3, that Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, grants resources and, and money and aid for Israel, for the Jews to build the temple, basically fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 60, 11, and 13, that the wealth of nations would flow to Jerusalem. The glory of Lebanon, right? The, the cedars of Lebanon, the, the trees from the nation of Lebanon, which were used to build the first temple and are now being used again to build the second temple, will flow to Israel. The glories of Lebanon. God is fulfilling his promises that God is always faithful. He will not abandon his people. And we learn here in, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, that they laid the foundation of the temple. They started to build a new house of the Lord. And it says that in the second month of the second year, they started to build the foundation of the temple, which is significant because the Solomon's temple was, was built in the second month of the year as well. They came together, they appointed workers and supervisors, and they Built and they laid the foundations of the new temple. And after this moment, they celebrated the Lord's faithfulness with trumpets. They sang praises to God, we see in verses 10 through 13. They even say, here in verse 11, they, they praised and gave thanks to the Lord. They sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. All the people shouted with a great shout. Enthusiasm was overwhelming. It was heard from far away. The joy of Israel as they praised God and his faithfulness to them. This, this, this building of the foundation, this, this laying them foundation of the temple was reinstituting their relationship with God. They are, they are going back to the covenantal love of God, that God is their God, and they are his people. And the temple also represents the atonement of their sins, that their sins are forgiven, that their sins are redeemed. 
they're lamenting. They're lamenting over several decades while being in captivity in Babylon. Has now been changed to shouting with joy. God had clearly not abandoned them. He renewed them. He resurrected them. They were raised from the dead. Raised from the grave. And set anew. Of course, this reminds us so well of Easter, right? The joy of the resurrection. If we look at John chapter 16, so interesting how similar the experience of Israel is to Jesus' followers. In John chapter 16. We see that in verses 20 through 22, when Jesus is with his disciples before his death, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is prophesying. He's saying that you're going to be sorrowful. You're going to be lamenting. They're not understanding exactly what he's talking about, but he's talking about his, his soon-to-be crucifixion and death where they will, be they will lament. They will be sorrowful. They will run away in shame. Peter himself denies Christ three times and is seen weeping. But Jesus says that their sorrow, their lament will be turned to joy. And it does return. He does turn them to joy. John chapter 20, Jesus' resurrection. We see in John 20, 11 through 18, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned, and she said to him in Arabic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he has said these things to her. She seemed weeping, right? She's sad and devastated that her Lord, that her Savior, that her teacher, her rabbi, uh, Jesus, has died the criminal's death on Friday. She comes to the tomb and his body has been taken. She's weeping that now his grave has been disturbed. But her weeping, her lament is turned to joy. She then is gone running to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, I have seen the Lord. She is joyous, she is celebrating. The next section, the disciples are in the upper room, they're hiding, they're fearing the Jews, they're fearing that they're gonna be arrested and killed, just like Jesus is. They've locked the door. But then Jesus is seen standing amidst, among them, 
and they are filled with joy. He says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Be at peace. And they are full of gladness. They are full of joy. The lamenting, their sorrow has been turned to joy. We even see Thomas in the next section. Thomas is not with them. He doubts that Jesus has risen from the dead. But then Jesus stands before him and says, peace be with you. And Thomas believes and worships the Jesus with joy. My Lord and my God, his lament, his sorrow has been turned to joy. In the midst of our current lament, right? Our current lament. To help a little bit here, and Paul talks about his own lament, his own suffering as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Psalm uh, Philippians 4, verse 10 through 13, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have no, you had uh, no uh, opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is, is talking to the Philippian church of, of rejoicing in the Lord greatly in all circumstance, in any and all circumstance, that Paul has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and in need. And that through that, that the Lord, he is faithful that the Lord will strengthen him in whatever circumstance that he is in. And in this particular situation, while he's writing Philippians, he's imprisoned for Christ. He says this in verse 1, 13 through 14. He even says in verse chapter 4, verse 14, the next passage here after, after the, the passage that I just read, that he talks about, yet it was kind for you to share in my troubles. He is in trouble. He is lamenting. He is sorrowful. He's in prison. He's away from those who comfort him. But he's learned to have hope. He's learned to rejoice in time of lament. In our current circumstance, as a country, as a city, as a community. Right now, there is 17 million people unemployed. Debt is, is rising in households and in businesses. Right now, there's just a little less than half a million cases of corona in the United States. Over 16,000 people have died. Businesses and schools have been closed. Weddings uh, postponed. Graduations canceled, vacations canceled, churches closed, birthday parties with no friends. Little to be joyous about right now. I read a story this morning about what families are going through as loved ones are dying in isolation. There's a story of a, of a, of a, of a daughter named Nancy Hopkins and her father, Robert McCord. Robert McCord, her father, who's 83, just passed away with COVID-19. And she was unable to be with him when he died. Said goodbye to him on a cell phone that the nurses were holding for her father, Robert. She said, and then another, another, um, another individual named David Michael Dudley Jr., her, whose father also passed away in isolation. He says, I struggle with saying words like unfair, but that is what it really feels like. 
Very similar language almost than what Jeremiah says in Lamentations. It's just not fair. Hope has been lost. Struggling to cope with this idea of not being able to say goodbye to your loved ones who are dying alone in isolation. A lot of lamenting, a lot of sorrow right now. How can we, like Paul, rejoice greatly in the Lord? Learning the secrets of facing need, sorrow, suffering, and lament. Find joy in the sorrow. Find joy in lament. Find the seed of hope in time of lament and sorrow. For Paul, his joy came from the resurrection of Christ. He says in Philippians 3, 12 through 21, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What, is, what causes Paul to press on during lament and struggle and trial? What causes him to strain forward, to press on towards the goal? He awaits a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform his body. His hope is in the resurrection of Christ that seals his own future resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 4.14, he who raised Jesus will raise us also with Christ. That if we are in Christ, if we're unified in Christ, Christ's resurrection from the dead is the seal, the guarantee of our own resurrection to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 21, Paul says, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ has given us hope. He is the first fruit. He is the first taste. We think of Thanksgiving or even the meal we may eat today, that first taste, that first smell of the food that awaits of the feast is almost the best. Jesus' resurrection is the first taste, the first fruit of the first smells of our own resurrection to come, the guaranteed of a future feast, of a future celebration and joy. This is important for us to realize that as Christians, if you are a Christian today, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you've already experienced the resurrection, right? You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the joy of your spiritual rebirth. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 9 through 11. But also, 
the joy of your future resurrection. Romans 8, 22 through 25, right? We groan, right? We also groan in our lament. We groan living in this created world that is under subjection, that it has been pressed to fertility, that it also groans. But what does Paul say? That we await the resurrection of the dead. God will not abandon you as well to corruption. In the midst of your lament, we have the joy of our spiritual transformation now. If you put your faith in Christ, you have been spiritually resurrected. You are no longer in the grave of sin, but you have been risen. That's why baptism is so important. It symbolizes your death and burial in sin, and you're risen in your resurrection from sin. But also, we have the joy of our future resurrection that we eagerly wait to be revealed through faith. Faith in our trust in Christ. That God did not abandon Jesus Christ to corruption in the grave. He will not abandon us to corruption in the grave as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 53. This incorruptible must put on the incorruptible. Christ has swallowed up death in victory. Christ has risen, and since you have trusted in him for salvation, you also will be raised from the dead as well. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have trusted in the one who died on the cross for your sins, who has risen from the grave, if you've trusted in that work of Christ, you also can have hope in a future resurrection from the grave. John says in Revelations 26, blessed is he that has a part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection being the resurrection of your spirit, your resurrection from sin, that out of the grave of sin you have been raised because of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection over sin and death, that you have been risen from your spiritual death. The Spirit has entered into you and lifted you up and out of your unbelief. If your souls have been raised, your bodies shall also be gloriously raised as well. God will not abandon you. He will not abandon us in the grave. Friends and family, when we die, may early on come to our grave, leave flowers. But friends tend to not come as often. Family members tend not to come as often. Which is interesting right now, um, during this kind of quarantine that has kind of spread around our country, uh, still the sentinels, the the soldiers still guard the, the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington Cemetery in Virginia. The sentinels keep watch even now. They even said in an article, we will not forget our fallen brothers and sisters. We will not forget. We will always watch. Doesn't matter what's going on, we will always be at our post. They will not be abandoned. God will not abandon us. God will not leave us to corruption. God will always be faithful. As he was faithful to Israel and as he was faithful to Christ, he will be faithful to us as well. The grave will give up their dead, Revelation 20, 13. God will restore your body 
like Christ's glorious body, a body that will never hunger or thirst, a body of strength and power, a, a, a body of immortality, a body that will never die, no more death, Revelation 21.4. No more COVID-19, no more virus, no more dying alone, no more dying in isolation, no more unemployment, no more quarantine. Where is our hope in this future joy? Where is our hope? How do we know that this is going to happen? Put your hope in the resurrection of Christ who defeated sin and death, who earned your freedom from sin and is the first taste of our own resurrection. God did not abandon Christ in the grave and those who are in Christ will also not be abandoned to death and the grave either by God. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. It was the same for the prophet Jeremiah. It was the same for the, the early returners from captivity to the, back to Jerusalem to build the new, king, the new temple. It was the same for Christ. It was the same for us. God will always be faithful. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. For great is his faithfulness. We're going to do that song today. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning do mercies I see. God is faithful. He is great. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray.